Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here from scottsbayassistance.com and we are back for another episode of the SPL podcast. If you hear any clonking in the background, by the way, it's Gav making a coffee. Give him a shout, Gav. Yo, yo, yo. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> anyway, today, guys, we've got an awesome guest. We've got Uriah Duffy with us. Uriah is, well, if you've not heard of him, he's an absolute killing bass player and right now he's currently on tour with fantastic Negrito who has just won a Grammy for the best contemporary blues album so we're going to get the lowdown on that gig but we also find out about Uriah's musical upbringing the classic rock influence of his dad who was a guitarist uh, Uriah was actually named after the band Uriah Heap as well and his brother is called Yes after the band yep you got it yes anyway you find out all about that in this podcast and he goes on to tell us about how he turned down a scholarship at berkeley and instead moved out to california um, and how he's made you know made a name for himself out there he's played with some amazing play many uh, amazing bands like white snake christina aguilera alicia keys you know the you know kind of speaks for itself really anyway so i'm going to hand over to nick and this week's guest the awesome uriah duffy Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SBL podcast here today with Uriah Duffy, who is one of my favorite bass players right now. Because you're so busy doing so much different kind of work, man, touring with different bands, MDing, producing, and a lot of guys will be familiar with you from your time with the Whitesnake, but as we were just saying, there's so much more in your career. It's so rich with all kinds of different stuff. Um, let's just go back to the start, Uriah. Tell us about how you got into the bass in the first place. Um, in the very beginning, I, I think it was from watching my dad play guitar. There was always music in the house. And it, growing up in New England, it, it's a lot of classic rock. It still is. Um, so my name is Uriah after the band Uriah Heap. My brother's name is Yes after the band Yes. Um, we had a lot of Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd and stuff in the house. And as that grew th- more through my life, my dad would keep influencing me with new music. And in 1985, all I wanted to do was listen to hip hop of the time, like UTFO. And he's saying, you should listen to this guy named Prince or you should listen to U2 when U2 was you know, just beginning. They were kind of more punk. Um, so my dad had a huge influence in bringing music or exposing me to it. And since I was three, I wanted to play bass and I have no idea why. But that's what I heard. And it wasn't until eight or nine that I picked it up. Oh, do you remember what you were playing at that time when you first picked up the bass? What were the first sort of bass lines that you headed to? Oh, absolutely. I, I went to a Rush concert. I mean, he brought me to a lot of concerts, but it's the Rush concert that stood out the most to me. Um, you know, Getty Lee is such a great player. And in a rock trio format, you you have to fill in more space. Uh, each instrumentalist has to fill in more space. So the bass stood out the most to me. And when I got home that night, I picked up his guitar and was able to play the line from Tom Sawyer just straight away. Um, that's what I heard. And as I got a bass, I, I just kept going with that, playing along to albums. And that, of course, branched out from the Rush catalog to Yes, and then to what Chris Squire was doing, and then Billy Sheehan, and, and so on and so forth, Stanley Clark. Um, and it grew from there, a, a very organic growth. And how did your sort of technique develop in that time? A lot of those bass players you mentioned play with a very different approach. How did you kind of start to really craft your own approach to the instrument? So for me, it, it was I was actually very lucky that I started with someone who was a, had as much facility as, say, a Getty or, or those bass players, because right. it wasn't different to me. It was that was the norm. <laughs> so understanding progressive rock uh, arrangements was very normal. And it took me actually much longer to learn simpler pop arrangements or to figure out what I was doing with my hands. Um, 
So yeah, technique kind of came just from doing and from being efficient and and wanting to be more efficient in the way I played things. And like very soon after learning the Tom Sawyer bass line on one string, I learned, well, you can go across the strings. It's much easier, you know, quicker to move around. So again, it was very organic, but I started with a level of, of instrumentalist that was very high. Um, and I just copied them. It's just like how you learn how to speak a language. Uh, what Victor Wooten speaks of a lot, you know, music as a language. And it really applied to how, how I learned. Were you self-taught? Yes. I was self-taught save. I mean, I, I took a few lessons around seventh or eighth grade. Um, I kind of wish I stayed. Uh, I only took maybe four or five lessons. But a lot of the things that this uh, jazz bass teacher taught me, I still use to this day. Reading a chart, for instance. Um, reading notes. Um, I also did jazz band all throughout junior high and high school, concert band as well, but always on the bass. And I never really got into another instrument, not guitar, nothing. I mean, the basics as a musician could, but I applied it all to bass, all polyrhythmic concepts on the drums to bass, guitar tapping to bass, and just trying to do bass as a full instrument. And what happened next? When did you start to get gigs and move things up to the next level? Well, my first paying gigs were, I was around 10. <laughs> so it, it was right away that I, I, I kind of took it on. I didn't play outside as much as my friends did. I'd stay inside. Um, so for a lot of the beginners out there um, and they see, you know, something easy for someone who's done it for a long time, it's because in my formative years, I, I stayed indoors for 12 hours, you know, playing along with these things. Um, so, yeah, I worked with children's uh, theater groups when I was younger then when I got into junior high and high school, I had bands on the side and they were just as vastly uh, uh, stylistically different as they are now. I was in a weird metal band where I was a freshman. I was like a little flea kid and the seniors were doing this punk rock. But I was also in a fusion jazz band that was kind of like Chick Corea. Um, so I started gigging and, do- and doing that stuff. And then I got in a cover band and the cover band was really, really a huge teacher for me. Um, a lot of guys kind of scoff at doing cover band stuff. The way I see it, the best bass lines of the 60s, 70s, and 80s are being given to you for free to learn, like a like a book to learn. Actually, no, not even for free, for pay. You're getting paid to learn them. So that became really, really powerful in my life, doing cover gigs. Everything in life can be a learning experience, so I took it on. And then what? And then what? Let's see. Um, <laughs> when did you oh, kind of take that step to be thinking, right, I can make a career out of this? Yeah, that, it, it is difficult. It is, it is a rocky road. It's full of ups and downs, even at my level. Um, even at anyone's level, it's always got ups and downs. Um, after high school, so I graduated high school in 1993 and had a full scholarship at Berklee School of Music, which I turned down. You turned that down, right? I read that. <laughs> and I... I regret it in many ways right. but I it, mostly I don't um, so I definitely learned in the school of hard knocks I learned uh, from taking gigs and trying to be psychic on gigs um, in a way if an experienced musician is looking down their nose at you or saying hey that might be kind of questionable you, you adjust and make it better um, so that was the school of hard knocks I, I got into gigging moved to California after high school um, to be with my mom and I already had family out there and had already grown up there as well between parents and that's where I really got into more cover bands and original bands. So I continued the same path I did in high school, and now these gigs were paying. Um, also, having a son uh, early on, I didn't want to be at Berkeley with a newborn baby. Um, Berkeley, Boston. So it was Berkeley, California instead. Uh, and, it, and it worked out. I did a lot of temp jobs on the side until I could 
do music full time. And the temp jobs I did were in graphic design and Photoshop. I used to teach Photoshop. Um, used to take Macintoshes apart since 1989. I used to take them apart and soup them up. And so that was my skill, but I eventually could just take more gigs. And that happened. And what was going on around you at that sort of time in terms of other bass players and other bands? It was quite an interesting time, right? A lot of new guys coming up with new ideas and new approaches. Yeah, there's a, a few albums that really changed my life um, bass-wise. Um, being younger, it was the, the prog rock and stuff and the Stanley Clark. Um, and then through high school, it was Bela Fleck and, and all the banjo stuff he was doing, all the Victor Wooten stuff and his solo career, which I followed. And even met Victor probably back in uh, 89 or 90. And every few years or so, we keep in touch or see each other bass-related events. And so he's kind of seen my career grow as well, which is pretty neat. Um, I don't know. What, what was the question again? <laughs> what was kind of your influences at the time? Of, of oh, your yeah. contemporaries at the same sort of period? What happened was going to the West Coast opened up my ears to a whole nother style of music. And, and definitely that was more of the R&B, more of the funk. A lot of the drummers around the Bay Area, um, they whooped my ass into groove. Um, a lot of the artists there were very soulful. And then, ironically, it was back out of the East Coast. Um, a lot of great stuff came out, the Erica Badu and the D'Angelo, and listening to Pino Palladino, who had always been one of my favorites, his fretless playing and such with Paul Young, but really hearing his soul and his laid-backness on the D'Angelo stuff, which was his influence, a lot of it was, was him, but a lot of it was Raphael Sadiq, Tony, 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 who I did get to, you know, became my friends and I got to play with. Uh, there was a lot of the soul music, and that was the West Coast influence, rap music as well, hip-hop from the West Coast with real instruments. So that was kind of my next step was how how far can you lay something back, it's like leaning back in a chair or a stool, how far can you go without falling, without it being wrong? And yeah, that was, that was a good addition to my arsenal. And you have so many influences. <laughs> when did you kind of think, or did you ever think, right, now I need to come up with something of my own, something that's gonna put me aside from all these other bass players? I have never to this day consciously thought of that. And play. yeah, I just play and I, I never really thought I had a voice, whereas everyone in my community says, No, you sound like you, dude. Right, sure. And the reason why I don't think I have a voice is because every technique and every lick I do, just about, I can trace back to an influence somewhere. Most most of us can. Um, and I don't and I never forget that. So I really feel I'm doing a little John Entwistle here and a little Victor here and a little this. And, and, and then this now I'm realizing that this casserole, the, this, this jambalaya has become my own sound. Uh, but, yeah, I, I try. And it's, it's always a balance. How much of yourself do you want to interject in a project? Sometimes people just want a bass player to hold down the bass role and you can't really put your own sound in it anyway. All and everything. <laughs> and you've been doing a lot more MD, right? Yes. I guess this is another organic uh, next out. Yeah. Not really consciously. Um, a lot of times you'd be in a room, and many people can relate to this, uh, full of dope musicians. Say you got five or six crazy awesome players, and just no one counts off the tune. It's in G. One, two, three, four. That's all it takes. Someone to lead a little bit. I, I never thought of myself as, as a good leader, but in lack of anyone else doing it, I started to do it. This is where my technical skills from the computer, I think, have helped me a lot. Uh, because I am so geeky and nerdy in that end, I'm very thorough in getting 
a Dropbox together, MP3s together, videos from past shows. I GoPro every show. Uh, and not for public consumption, but for players or myself even, just to go back and look and listen to what worked, what didn't work. And maybe you get a piece of magic on there. Maybe you get a piece of garbage on there. All of it is a learning experience and all of it is helpful. So with these kinds of tools at my disposal, it's helped me as a musical director as well. Has it taught you much about the role of the bass within a band? Having to step back a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. I, I play a lot less. Really? <laughs> Yeah, when, I was, when you're in high school and you're learning your library of licks, it's great. You put them in the library, and as you mature, you learn where and when you can play certain things. I'm not going to do a triplet slap lick in certain gigs. In fact, in this gig that I'm on right now, Fantastic Negrito, I'm playing a four-string tune like a five-string. So B-E-A-D, kind of like Ross Valerie of Journey. I don't need a G-string. I don't need fancy licks or triplet uh, bibbity bops. I just need bass playing. So... Yeah, being an MD and being and maturing naturally has, has made me a better player overall, for sure. And hearing all the different parts. Um, I had to MD a gig that was really untouched ground for me. I'm good with a combo, with a, with a rhythm section, but they also gave me three background singers and three horn players. And none of some of them didn't know each other, and they didn't know me at all. So I had to come up with parts for them as well, and that was definitely a new experience for me. And I love it. They, Do you still practice as much as you did? I wish I did. Um, like I keep going back to everything in life is a learning experience and everything you do in life can, can relate to your uh, maturity on an instrument or your craft or your skill. So although I don't sit and practice scales much anymore, um, I'm trying to learn business chops, um, social media chops, uh, musical directing. And, and you know, I, I don't need to play any faster or, or any more uh, facility on the bass to get to where I'm going. Having said that, there is a personal want of myself to be a better player. So although it's not necessary in my career, I do want to do that. So I haven't practiced as much as I want to, but I do save a scary bass player a folder. So a lot of Hadrian Faroe stuff, and he's a good friend of mine, but he's, he's just insane. Um, and, and Yannick Wisdala, he's a great guy. He's a great player and a great explainer of things. Scott's bass lessons, he's another great explainer of things and breaking them down. So there's a lot of resources I've bookmarked, and maybe when I'm 70, I'll visit them all. <laughs> Is there anything you've noticed um, in younger or the next generation of bass players that is perhaps different from your generation in terms of their outlook on the instrument? Hmm. A lot of the younger bass players, I, I, I don't know, I see the same thing where they come out of the gate kind of smashing and, and playing a lot of cool stuff and then they mature over the years. Some guys get it earlier than others. It happens with everyone. So I haven't noticed anything different. Music overall, I, I've noticed, is, is lacking. Uh, when you turn on the radio, you don't even really want to anymore. Music TV, MTV hasn't had music on it for years. Um, we just have to find other avenues to find good music. And a lot of it is talking with people, sharing playlists, you know, asking what's on, asking Siri what's playing in the background. That's how I've found a lot of new music. Let's just touch on some of the bands you played with in your career. If you could pick two or three that have had a real impact on you, um, artists you've been involved with or musicians you've played alongside, who would you, who would you pick? This definitely sounds like a humble brag or a boast, but um, I, I don't even believe my own resume. Um, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but um, it did. 
um, I was asked to join the, the Family Stone at one point, and they were going to get Sly out of hiding, and we were going to put a band together with most as many original members as possible. Wow. We had Cynthia on trumpet, Greg on sax, uh, Jerry. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Greg on drums, Jerry on sax, um, Rose on vocals, um, Vet, which is Sly's sister, on vocals. This was an amazing band. We had Wilton Rab on guitar instead of Freddie, and Wilton plays played and plays with Graham Central Station. They are a Bay Area band. They drank from the, the water there, and I learned a lot, a shit ton, from playing in that group. Everyone was older than me. Um, they showed me how Larry did things, and Larry is probably one of my, if not my favorite bass player, but one of my biggest idols. So, yeah, I learned a lot of groove, a lot of technique, um, just attitude and vibe from the Family Stone experience. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that was a big one for me. Um, if I could name another one, possibly, hmm, I don't know. That, that one was so big, it kind of encapsulates everything. I'm sure I'll remember when we get off. <laughs> <laughs> How about some more of your kind of studio experiences where it's not such a long-term thing, but you're just in and out for a session? Mm. There is a lot to learn there. Uh, say you get called for a studio session, you don't know the music, you don't know the artist, you don't know the producer, even you, you just have a connection and a recommendation. I'll probably show up with my four-string Fender and my five-string Lakeman. Those are the two where I can pretty much cover everything. If I'm feeling like my back is strong, I might bring a third bass along, maybe with flat wounds or a fretless, if I can kind of guess what they're into. Uh, but yeah, showing up and being on the clock and being able to execute what the producer wants in a timely fashion, but not sounding sterile, keeping it funky and, and making it sound human. Uh, that's a huge lesson. That's, again, that, that's my schooling. So even though I'm, I'm decent at it, one can always be better and one can always be learning. And I'm always learning. I take that as school for me. Do you ever find when you're in the studio, there's often maybe a guide track down already? And it may be something that you can't really add an awful lot to in some situations. Yep. How, yep. A lot of times. How do you have, lift that and put your own stamp on that? So when I have a track either sent to me, because I do a lot of remote re recording, I can okay. do it on the I bring an interface. And a lot of times people will ask if I want the bass track or not. And I like to have the option, I, but I prefer to listen to the track through first without any bass track, no guide track. I want to kind of hear where I would naturally go without being guided. Then I'll go back and listen to their version of, of, of a bass line and then kind of come up with something on my own. Sometimes their bass guide track or bass track is really good and can be used in addition to bass. And, and so I don't like to fight or replace synth bass lines. I like to work with them. If you listen to any of Stevie Wonder stuff, a lot of Stevie Wonder stuff has both. Um, so, yeah, any and everything is possible just kind of take it for what it is what like where the song should go do you find sometimes you may not add more notes necessarily but you may change the sound of the bass somehow yeah so absolutely maybe the tone yeah. sometimes they're playing a great idea but they're not a real bass player whoever did the track right. so just merely playing the same keyboard bass line but on a bass will improve the track how much thought do you put into the sound of your instrument or the sound you're making with the instrument not too much. I'm, I'm kind of a purist when it comes to tone. Like I said, a Fender Jazz and a Lakeland 5, I mean, those are pretty pure in tone, or a P-Bass. Um, 
I don't have, I do have some pedals and I do experiment more and more each day. But when it comes down to it, I think the raw bass should be able to speak for itself. Most everything should be able to be played with a four string. And if it's something that could use a little help, the, my go-to pedal um, in the funk or R&B or urban world is going to be my, I, I kind of glued two pedals together, uh, an octave and an envelope. And so I can kind of get key bass or dubby sounds out of that. Do you think it's important to have a relationship with one particular bass, like a go-to bass you've had for years that kind of aged with you? Or you yeah. Yeah? I mean, it, it, it shouldn't matter. You should be able to, to free yourself of any one anything. And that would be very Buddhist in thought, I guess. Uh, <laughs> The, which is which is true and, and let, letting things go and if someone you know if I was on a desert island and came across a group of natives and we couldn't communicate but they said oh you he said bass and they bring me some rusty old two-string P bass you should be able to play it <laughs> uh, you can't let the instrument limit you having said that you know if you do have the ability to have one instrument through your career uh, that you really love and it gets better over time yeah it seems to be this relation I have with either the Fender or the Lakeland. And my Lakeland five string, it's one of the USA models from around 1999. And I think I got what my friend calls a Wednesday model, where they're not hung over on Monday when they made it and they're not trying to get up on Friday. It's, it's truly a Wednesday model. And it's the only bass I haven't modified. <laughs> it's perfect. What have you done to, to other bases? I'm interested to hear about his modifications. So I, I should probably send you a, a link. Um, my last column I did in Bass Player, they did an article on, on how to modify a bass or a jazz bass. So my jazz basses are something that I've modified myself, and I've actually done this for other people and, and sold them or given them to them. So in a nutshell, I take a Fender Jazz, a Mexican, an American, a Japanese, doesn't matter. I like the Mexican one myself. And first thing I do is put a big bridge on it, like a badass two. Uh, I believe the Getty Lee model already has that on it. Um, then I'll put some good tuners on, like hip shots, and including an extender key, and then pickups, uh, pickups of the day. There's so many great pickups these days. It used to be Bartolini for me just as my go-to. Nowadays, it's these Nordstrand uh, 70s single coils. I have fallen in love with those. They're just so great. So those are the main parts. Then there's aesthetics. I have Sims LEDs in one bass. I have uh, an Aguilar OBP3 preamp in my main jazz bass, which is defeatable. Um, but all these things you can do yourself. You can do it pretty much with a screwdriver or basic, basic soldering skills. You're not going to really ruin anything, especially if you bought a used Fender Jazz Bass for, say, 300 bucks. You can really take the power into your own hands and make a dream instrument. And when people play my Fender Jazz, they, they ask, what vintage is it? What year is it? This sounds awesome. I'm like, this is, I bought it for 350 bucks originally. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's such a cool thing. To do. Yeah, you can, I want to empower people that you can pick up a screwdriver and do it yourself. Alright. Um, I must ask you about Whitesnake, otherwise I'll have guys knocking at my door. How would you sum up that time with that band? Uh, let's see, it's been a revolving door of really great musicians um, over the years, and I was honored to be included in that. And it was really, yeah, it was an honor to be part of a legacy, and this is in the band's later years, this is in their, their legacy band now. Uh, David Carrillo was an absolute pleasure to work with. What a gentleman. And he's like, this isn't rocket science, mate. We just go out, we rock them, we, we kill them with love and compassion, and then move on to the next. I'm like, that's great. Uh, the musicians in the band were amazing. Tommy Aldridge on drums. 
uh, Doug Aldrich on guitar, Reb Beach, uh, my friend Timothy on keys, just an amazing pianist, an amazing composer and songwriter in his own right. So, yeah, it was a great experience. And then, of course, the travel. I mean, over 50 countries in the time I was in the band. What have you learned from traveling? I mean, you're on tour right now and you're, you're touring all the time. What, what are your sort of pet hates and loves about it? I hate when there's tour casualties. Like I had, I'm in Switzerland where I think I mentioned earlier, it's one of the most expensive places on earth and I had to replace my MacBook pro charger. So yeah, that was expensive. Um, <laughs> losing your sleep mask. You, just, you have to have a place for everything. That's one of my biggest things I've noticed on tour. If you don't put it in the same place, it'll, it can get lost. Um, let's see. Let the bank do your um, money conversion. Use an ATM or, or use a contactless payment with your phone. Um, try to get learn how to get sleep in bursts. You might not get all eight hours or seven hours at once, but you might get four here and three here. Uh, these are just things off the top of my head. Um, oh, lobby call time is God. You can pretty much get away with murder as long as you're there when the band and everyone and the artist needs you to be there at lobby call. Then you can move on. Uh, I hope those those answers satisfy you. They're very real. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't talked once about my tuning or, you know, or any, you know, the, the which pedals I have on the road or the wireless unit or the batteries. Those are all secondary. You have to show up first. Yeah. All the other stuff falls into line after that. And let's talk about this current tour you're on. Tell us a bit about this, this run. Fantastic Negrito. Um, quickly really interesting become- guy. Very interesting. Um, a new friend well, of a couple of years. Um, we're very proud of him back in Oakland for self-producing and recording without help from a major label, his album, and going from busking in the streets to a Grammy win uh, in two years, I believe. And this is someone who had sworn off music, who had had deals in the past, and now he has something to say and is doing it so with so much compassion and so much heart. And he doesn't want you to feel comfortable at the show. He wants you to really feel what social injustices there are without being too political. Um, doing it through music, making you think. Um, he never does the arrangement of the song the same twice. So the audience is on their toes, but the band is also on our toes. we got to get those hits when they're tight. It's best described in, in the way he leads the band, like somewhere between the rock uh, awesomeness of Robert Plant, but with the tightness and quick cues of James Brown. Sure. Yes, exactly right. So somewhere in there, I'm still kind of developing my own uh, way to describe him. Uh, as a friend, he's just great. Uh, also from Oakland, he understands uh, the concerns that we have in our neighborhood there. Um, I, like I had recently had to leave. Um, some might call it gentrification. Some might call it something else. Natural selection. I don't know what you call it, but I had to leave. Uh, so those topics are touched upon in our set and yeah, he's just socially aware and bringing music to the people and using that to bridge everybody. And where are you off to next? Are you in Europe right now? We're in Europe. It's a seven-week run. Uh, we are in the heart of Europe in Switzerland right now playing the silly-named uh, Blue, Blue Balls Festival. Uh, then we're off to UK. So we'll be there for a few days. I'll have my birthday, I think, in Manchester. Um, and then through August, we're going to hit Sweden, Norway, um, we've already done France, Spain, Poland. Um, it's just, it's a long run, but it's been really fun and people are so receptive to us and warm. And I'm really grateful to be at this level in his career. 
I've joined a lot of these bands in when they've already had a name and seeing him grow even in the time I've been with him over the past less than a year has been quite amazing so I'm glad to be in on it at this level yeah it's a really cool show and yeah go and check it out guys you, uh, you won't be disappointed you're right thanks so much for hooking up with us today um, it's been a real pleasure um, very well if you get a chance go and find you on a gig somewhere where are your tour dates where can people find out where you're going to be so I keep a very active social media uh, with between Facebook and Instagram and much like other things in my life I, I have to it has to be the full me it's not all base nerd stuff and it's not all gig stuff it might be food somewhere or a, me, a social media commentary somewhere but it's all me so that's what you'll find there um, and if you go to my website Uriah at UriahDuffy.com. The gigs page is updated. I do keep that's the one part of my website I keep up to date. UriahDuffy.com calendar or, or gigs or whatever it says on there. Right. I type it in and forget. So yeah, <laughs> please just reach out, say hi. Um, I'm always giving out free base tips for whoever asks, and if I can help get someone to a place quicker than it took me, I'm there. I'm your guy. There you go, guys. Go and check it out. Thanks a lot, man. Take it easy. Okay, guys, thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. And a huge thanks to Uriah as well for coming along and hanging out with Nick and uh, sharing all of his base goodness with us. As always, we'll be back next week with another awesome guest. Uh, in the meantime, if you haven't been to scottsbasslessons.com and checked out what we're doing over there, in a nutshell, we're the ultimate online bass school. We've got an amazing faculty of bass players. Um, the, the largest online uh, course re- resource for bass players in the world. We do live stream seminars every week. It's the whole nine yards. You can go and check it out scottsbassessons.com and grab your 14 day free trial as well. So scottsbassessons.com, go do it. Anyway, as always, <laughs> I don't know why I say this. Anyway, as always, take it easy and I'll see you in the shed. Bye.